Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, this is Ibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I'm also the host of Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight, and I'm the editor of the anthology, which you should run out and buy, called Moms Don't Have Time to, a quarantine anthology. All proceeds of that book go to COVID-19 vaccine research. And I'm the editor-in-chief of Moms Don't Have Time to Write, a new publication on Medium, and we're accepting submissions, so please send your personal essays there. And if all that isn't enough, you can follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens, and my website is zibbyowens.com. Okay, now back to this amazing podcast. Gina Yashere is the author of Crack Handed, a memoir. Born and raised in London to Nigerian parents, she previously worked as an elevator engineer for Otis. Gina has been a stand-up and TV star in the UK for numerous years now, with appearances on iconic TV shows such as Live at the Apollo and Mock the Week, as well as creating and performing the hugely popular comedic characters Tanya and Mrs. Omo Kerede on The Lenny Henry Show. She broke onto the American comedy scene with her appearances on Last Comic Standing on NBC, where she made it to the final 10 and then never went home. Gina went on to be named one of the top 10 rising talents in The Hollywood Reporter. She's also known in the U.S. for being the only British comedian to ever appear on the iconic Deaf Comedy Jam, as well as for her hilarious appearances on The Tonight Show and Crashing on HBO. Gina self-produced three separate one-hour stand-up specials, Skinny Bitch, Laughing to America, and Ticking Boxes, two of which are currently streaming on Netflix. Gina's fourth stand-up special is also streaming on Netflix as part of The Stand-Up Season 2 and is garnering rave reviews on the network. She's regularly featured on Comedy Central as the British correspondent on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah 
and is also an in-demand voice artist. She has voiced characters in various animations, including Keisha in the British cult hit Bromwell High and Gravel in the latest movie from the makers of Wallace and Gromit and Chicken Run Early Man. She can currently be heard playing a starfish called Gareth on the children's ITV show The Rubbish World of Dave Spud. Gina has performed for audiences not just in Europe, the U.S., and Australia, but she is, in fact, a highly sought-after comedian in Asia, making numerous sold-out appearances in Singapore, Cambodia, Vietnam, Malaysia, and Hong Kong. It's a wonder she found the time to pick up her fourth award in a row for Best Comedian at the recent Black Entertainment and Comedy Awards in the U.K. Gina has performed numerous times at the prestigious Just for Last Comedy Festival in Montreal and Toronto. Feature film appearances have included Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and Mr. In Between, and she has also appeared in the West End stage in the Vagina Monologues. Gina currently resides in Los Angeles, where she is producing, writing, and acting on the new sitcom Bob Hart's Abishola, which she created with Chuck Lorre and is currently airing on CBS. Welcome, Gina. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books to discuss Cack Handed a Memoir. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Of course. Would you mind telling listeners a little bit about your memoir and why you even decided to write one? So the memoir is basically, it covers my first sort of, the history of my parents. So it it slightly covers the history of Nigeria, where my parents came from. And then their journey to England, where they met, they had me. And then, so it covers my, the first sort of, I'm going to say 25 years of my life, just growing up in London, England in the 70s, you know, being chased by skinheads, racism was super, you know, at the forefront of everything at the time. And my experience through school, you know, then becoming an engineer, I worked for Otis, uh, who make elevators. I was repairing and building elevators as an engineer, and I was their first woman engineer in their 100-year history in the UK. So... My experiences on that job as a woman and a black woman on that, and you can just about imagine what that was like. And then my foray into comedy and my experiences in comedy. So basically, it's a humorous memoir, but it also covers pretty dark subjects as well. So it's a bit of both. And the the reason why the book is called Cat Candid is because I'm left-handed, which is an old English word for left-handed. And in many cultures, African culture, Indian, Middle Eastern, the left hand is the hand is is the unclean hand is the hand that's supposed to be used to wipe your bum when you go for a poo and kak kaka is another word for poo hence kak handed and also it's a, a metaphor for how my life and career has gone because you know kak handed also means awkward and clumsy I don't think we are awkward and clumsy. I just think it's because we live in a right-handed world. If I'm next to you at a bar and I'm talking and I'm gesticulating with my left hand, I'm probably going to knock over your drink because you put it on your dominant side, which is your right side. But because 90% of the world or whatever is right-handed, we're the ones seen as awkward and clumsy. So that's the meaning of the word. And so cat candid is kind of a metaphor for the light, the, the route that my life has taken, my career, you know, I've, it's never been a straight line. I've had, had to circumvent loads of obstacles, jump over obstacles, get under obstacles, dig around them. So that's why I called the book that. <laughs> wow. Excellent. I will never look at a left-handed person the same way again, basically. Exactly. Yeah, yeah you're, I know. You're yeah, <laughs> you're like rebranding all the left-handed people everywhere. Maybe not in yeah. such a positive light, I'll have you know, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one scene that really stood out out to me was was when the girl in one of the classrooms leaned out of the window and started just saying racist awful stuff to you and you decided to just run right up there the teacher Um, turned a blind eye and just kind of like beat the living daylights out of this girl 
I did. And then I almost got arrested and had your life sort of, you know, take a completely different tack. And then you end up trying to sort of kill yourself and, yeah. <laughs> and then having to pretend that you were unconscious, even to the paramedics. Oh my gosh. Wait, tell me more about that whole situation. Well, you know, my, the, that incident was a culmination of years of abuse at school, years of being called names because my parents were African and very visibly African. My name was African. You know, it was years of abuse at school. I'd uh, spent my years fighting people at school. You know, it was either fight or be bullied. And so I was one of those kids that I was like, well, I'm going to be the crazy scrapper because that way... I won't get bullied. So if anybody even said anything to me, I'd immediately launch myself myself at them. And then that stopped me being bullied because people go, oh, no, don't mess with her. She's crazy. But they'd laugh at me and call me names behind my back or whatever. But they were like, don't mess with her. She'll, she'll attack you. She's crazy. And then as I got older, I switched that tactic and started switching more towards humour and using my humour to keep so, so I was like, if people are laughing at me, or at least laughing, laughing, if I'm making them laugh, at least they're not abusing me. So I that's how I my humor developed. But yeah, this was like the last, pretty much the last day of school. I was doing my exams, and it was just before the summer holidays, summer vacations. And so I was feeling good. I was doing my exams. I wasn't in school uniform because to come in to do your exams, you didn't have to wear your school uniform. So I picked out a cool outfit I put together. And I was, I'd finished, just done an exam. I know I'd passed it. I was feeling good. And I was walking through the playground on my way home. And all the other, the rest of the school was in class. You know, they were in class. And this girl just leaned out the window and just started screaming abuse at me. And I'm like, I'm here in my outfit that I spent hours picking out. I'm feeling good. I've passed my exams. I'm, I'm feeling positive. I'm about to go into a new journey in my life. And this girl is just dragging me back to the gutter. And I kind of just lost my temper. And she'd been one of the, you know, the main proponents of the abuse over the years. So I was like, all right, I'm done. I'm not taking this anymore. And I went up into her classroom and we got into a fight. But the fury that just I unleashed on her, she stood no chance. And the teacher, <laughs> and yeah, she was in a maths class, I believe, at the time. And the teacher did nothing. I mean, he was, I think he was Moroccan. He was an African teacher too. So I'm sure that he'd also been, you know, subjected to some of that anti-African abuse that she loved at me. So I got the feeling that he, he, you know, he pretended, oh, Gina, stop, but he did nothing to stop me. He just kind of stood by and let it happen. And afterwards he was like, okay, off you go. And then, but he still reported me at the end, which really annoyed me. I was like, <laughs> you let me do what I do. And you could at least kept quiet about it, but I suppose he had to keep his job. So, and that's what happened. And then, that was just before my exams. And I was supposed to be coming back to that school as a, I mean, the years set up is different between England and America. But I was coming back to do my advanced levels, which was exams that you study that get you into college. So the first set of exams are just to get to see whether you're going to go to work or go to college and go and do vocational qualifications. So I was coming back to do my advanced levels, which would have got me into college. And I was supposed to be doing it at that same school. But after that fight, I got called into the, the head's office and was like, and they told me, you, you can't come back to do your A-levels here. So you're, but you're pretty much expelled. I was told to leave the school. Deep down, I didn't care because I hated that school. I'd spent, you know, 
five years being abused every day at that school. So I wanted to go to another school to do my A-levels, but my mother wasn't having it. She was like, no, this is a good school to stay in here. So it was like the universe was saying, now you're going to go somewhere else and you're going to start a new life. But my mother didn't see it that way. So she was furious and lambasted me for hours. And I was like, you know what? I'm done with this. This whole exam thing, I don't want to do any of this. This is all because you're forcing me to do this. I'm done with this life. So after my mum screamed at me for hours, I went up to my room and I went to the medicine cabinet in our bathroom and I took a bunch of aspirins. I don't know what they're called here. It was an Advil? No, Advil is Ibuprofen. Aspirin's a thing. So maybe Right, so I took a, a, a tub of aspirin and I just chugged them all back with a can of coke. I was like, I'm done with this life. I'm going to die and hopefully float around and watch you guys crying over me and you're going to feel bad. You know, so that was, it was all anger. It was not, it was less about wanting to end my life, but more about revenge. (laughs) And going, you're going to see what you've been doing to me all these years. It was more about that. It was more of a cry for help, really, than me wanting to die. But then the only way I could get these things that I wanted was to die kind of thing. So I took a tub of aspirin. And in the movies, you see all these people take tablets, they swallow them, they lie down, they go into sort of a deep unconsciousness and die peacefully in their sleep or choking on their own vomit, one of the two. But I was, just, I was hoping that I, I would be the, you know, the prior where I'd be just fall asleep and just die peacefully and then float around and watch my mother scream in agony and, 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 and grief. But aspirins don't do that to you. <laughs> I didn't know that. So I took them and then lay there waiting to be unconscious. And I was like, when is this stuff going to kick in? I need to be unconscious soon because in, in, in a few minutes, I know my mom is going to call me to do something, you know. I lay there for like 20, 25 minutes. I'm like, oh my God, this is not happening. I'm not, but I'm just going to lie here, close my eyes and fake it till I make it. So I just closed my eyes and lay there as if I was unconscious. And my mum had a bell in the house that she pressed, which rang upstairs when she wanted the kids. Because we were like, we were Downton Abbey before Downton Abbey. <laughs> and uh, so she rang the bell. I heard the bell. I lay there and you know, I was like, okay, quick, unconscious, you know, unconscious, come on, come to me now, come on. Oblivion, come to me, oblivion, nothing. My older sister comes up the stairs and goes, do you not hear mum calling you? You, you? She wants you downstairs. And I'm lying there pretending to be unconscious. And my sister's like, what's going on? She comes over, she sees the empty tub of aspirins and realised, and, and a note, that, an angry note that I'd written. And uh, so she starts shaking me and slapping me, trying to wake me up. Now, <laughs> she slapped me hard. <laughs> now, in normal life, I'd have been like, ouch, ouch, just what you did. But I was method acting at this point. So I, I stayed fake unconscious. So she runs downstairs, calls my younger brother, who's kind of the mediator in the family, because Gina's taken an overdose. I'm going to call the ambulance, blah, blah, blah. So they call an ambulance. They, they go tell my mum. My mum collapses on the floor screaming. So she's no use to anybody at this point. The paramedics, ambulance comes, paramedics come upstairs. They run up. I hear the footsteps because I'm obviously, I am conscious the entire time. Paramedics run in and they're looking at me. They're looking down my throat. They're looking at my eyes. They're opening my eyes to see, you know, all that kind of stuff, how dilated my pupils are, whatever. And then they, they say to my sister, what did she take? And my sister goes, there's an empty tub of aspirin here. So she took all of these. And then the paramedic is like, hmm. (laughs) (laughs) And then he kind of of leans into me and goes, okay, we know you're not unconscious, love. Just look, why don't you just wait, open your eyes, 
we'll walk down to the, the ambulance, we'll have a chat on the way to the hospital, it'll all be good. But I'm, in my head, I'm like, I don't know how he knows this, but I am method, I am not waking up. So I refused, I, I played unconscious to the end. And in the end, these poor paramedics, because my bedroom was on the top floor of a, floor sto- a four-story house, they had to carry my limp body down four flights of stairs into the ambulance. And I played unconscious all the way to the hospital until it got to the moment where they got me into some, some like a, a surgical room and I heard the doctor say gastric lavage. And I'm like, what is that? I need to know what that is. So I pretended to come out of unconsciousness. Oh, oh, <laughs> what's happening? And uh, I woke up just in time to have a vacuum cleaner pipe shoved down my throat. If anybody's taken an overdose and had their stomach pumped, they'll know exactly what I'm talking about. So a gastric lavage is a stomach pump. They basically clamp your mouth open. And in some cases, which with me, because I was fighting it, they sort of clamp my arms down and basically shoved what the equivalent of a vacuum cleaner pipe down my throat into my stomach and basically vacuumed my insides out like a wet carpet. <laughs> so it was almost, <laughs> and that was my one and only experience of attempting suicide. Cause I was like, if I ever do this again, I'm gonna make sure it's something that you can't come back from. Cause I never wanna go through that stomach pumping experience again. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Oh my gosh. And you said in the book, there was like no anesthetic or anything either. They just like. No anesthetic. They do it while you're awake. Oh my gosh. I feel like you should be the poster child for why like teenagers should not commit suicide. You should be like, you know what guys, like it doesn't, it's even worse than whatever's going on. This is terrible. I don't mean to joke about it. It's obviously extremely serious. It's a serious subject, you know, and I, you know, it was a, a very dark time in my life, but I feel like the stomach pump was made as a deterrent. Like, yeah, this is what happens if you try and commit suicide and you survive. This is what we're going to put you through. So go back and tell all your friends. We just watched this 30 for 30 documentary. I don't know if you saw it. There was a baseball player who tried to kill himself 
and he shot himself and somehow uh, missed his brain and only got his eye and had to uh, lay there. Anyway, I don't even know why I'm saying this, but if you, uh, if you want an even worse story, yeah. I don't know why I'm drawn to all these, like, you know, but whatever. Well, yeah. I, I'm delighted that everything worked out okay, obviously. And, you know, that you you came on the other side and somehow, you know, I have to say, like reading the beginning of your story, like you wouldn't necessarily think that like the character in this book is going to end up, you know, like producing a CBS, like primetime <laughs> sitcom. Like, you know, I'm like, exactly. how did we get from here to there? It was such a fascinating journey that you had. Like, oh my yeah. gosh. And, you know, yeah. really amazing. And by the way, the show, I watched the preview and everything about Bob, but now I have to like go watch the show and you're oh. Netflix special too. I watched with my kids for part of it. And you're like, <laughs> you were so funny because you're like, I'm not afraid of flying. I'm afraid of flying and then suddenly not flying at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the truth. I know, that's but that's what truth. everybody means, but never yeah. says, which is like, of yeah. course, you know, <laughs> the genius of comedy. So did you ever think like, and I, and I also wanted to talk about your relationship with your mom who, you know, mm -hmm. That is such a huge part of this book is your mm -hmm. how you navigated her and her moods and dictates and her how she raised you and how that affected you going forward and everything. Like, did you see any of this coming? Like, what do you think now? Like, now that you've especially gone through the exercise of writing this whole book, like, what do you make of the whole thing? I mean, writing the book was pretty cathartic because going back, a lot of feelings came out when I was writing the book. Like, there was one chapter where I talked about a party that was across the street from my house. That was so sad. Yeah, that all my school friends oh. were going. My mum wouldn't let me go to that party. And I was like, you could see and hear. You could reach across from your couch and drag me out of the party without even getting leaving the house if you wanted to. That's how close this party was. And as and, and she still let me go. And all my friends were knocking on the door as they went to the That's party. crazy. And I, I don't know why yeah. she did that. I was so mad at her on your behalf. Yeah. Well, but... well, exactly. And so, and I was a good kid. It's not like I was running around doing, so I was a good kid. But writing that chapter, as I wrote it, the anger and resentment <laughs> was still there. It came flowing out of me as I wrote that chapter. So it was pretty cathartic. I mean, looking back now, I can see why my mom was the way she was. She was abandoned in England by my father who went back to Nigeria, who was like, I, I cannot be a lawyer in England because of, uh, this country is too racist and they won't let us you know, follow the careers that we're qualified for. So I'm gonna, uh, let's go back to Nigeria where we can live the life that we're supposed to have. And my mom was like, no, my, my children are British. I want them to have these opportunities that bring British entails. I'm staying here. So they broke up. My father went back to Nigeria and became a lawyer and had a great life and married somebody else and had a bunch of other kids. So my mum was abandoned in London with no friends, no family, two toddlers, pregnant with a third. And, you know, she, she was alone. She was alone. And she had to put me and my next brother into foster care temporarily while she went into hospital to have my younger brother because she had nobody. She had no support system in England at the time to help her look after her kids. So yeah, me and my brother were in foster care for like, I, I don't know, it felt like forever. When you're three years old, it feels like forever, but it was probably, you know, a couple of months uh, at most or something. Yeah, so we went into foster care while my mom went into hospital in the 70s England, which was super racist and still is, you know, the hospital system, if you look at the statistics in England now, black women are several times more likely to die in hospitals and uh, medical care 
than white women because they're treated differently. The, the, the bias and racism has, has spread its tentacles throughout the healthcare system. So my mother is in hospital in England in the 70s where the racism is outward. <laughs> Having a baby by herself, abandoned by her husband. So that fear sort of permeated everything she did when she was raising us. The fear of, you know, if something happened to one of her kids, she'd be blamed because she had no husband, it's just her. So yeah, that fear permeated everything. And that's why she was so overprotective of us, never let, basically never letting us out of her sight. So looking back, even though it was a horrible time for me as a child, like going, oh God, I can't have friends over. I can't go to friends' house. I can't go to parties. I can't go on school trips. I can't learn to swim. Are you serious? Looking back, I can see why she was the way she was. And you even said somewhere that now you have a dog, and so you understand, right? <laughs> yeah, I have. I don't have kids, but I have a puppy, and I kind of understand. Every ten minutes, I'm like, "Where's?" And I live in an area where there's a lot of nature: coyotes, bobcats, bears. You know, so I'm like, uh, "You can't leave her outside on her own. Bring her in the house. Put her on the tether, because something could grab her." And that's how I am all the time. And the dog must be looking at me like, "I'm a dog. Let me run." Uh, so. <laughs> I can understand to a much smaller extent, obviously a dog is no way is equivalent to a child, but I can understand to a smaller extent that fear of something happening to something or somebody you love, you know what I mean? Well, I feel like there is so much value in understanding and like putting yourself in someone's shoes and all of that, but it still, you know, can't make up for everything else. You know, yeah. I feel like when you understand people, maybe it, you know, does it really make the hurt go away? I don't know. No, but it was when I when I wrote the book, it all came out of me, and I didn't realize I've been holding on to a lot of the resentment, especially when I write, wrote the the chapter about my step bastard. I call him step bastard. He was my step my stepfather. He was a horrible, horrible man. And when I was writing that that, that chapter, all the anger and hatred came out of me. So I was like, oh my gosh, I've been holding on to this stuff since I was a teenager. I'm nearly fifty years old now. Like. I've been holding on to this stuff for years. So it was great to write the book and have it all just come out. It was cleansing. And him, I don't forgive at all. If there is a hell, I hope he's in it. And I hope he's burning. If there is, I don't know if there is, but I hope he's getting some kind of, I hope he comes back as a cockroach. I believe in reincarnation. I hope he comes back as a cockroach and gets splattered immediately and keeps coming back as a cockroach. But there is forgiveness. With my mum, I know it was out of love. Mm -hmm. It was out of love. Yep. And so... You know, I can look back and I can figure, forgive her for that because I know that, you know, she didn't know any other way. She had no, she had no support system. She knew no other way. She did the best that she could with the skill set that she had. But yeah, so writing this book has definitely been very helpful in, in sort of processing all those feelings. It's amazing. I mean, they should really like... Maybe therapists like don't want people to know how great it is to write a book because they'd yeah. all be out of business. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like just skip fifty years of therapy, go straight to the yeah. memoir, and call me yeah. in a you know call me in a few weeks. Yeah. Well, having gotten through this huge emotional and you know intellectual project, you know, what advice would you have for other people who are trying to write a book or accomplish something similar? Just do it. I mean, I didn't know if I could write a book. I didn't know. You know, it, it all started from Throwback Thursday hashtags on uh, Instagram where you post an old picture. That's how it started. I'd post an old picture and tell the story behind the picture. And people were like, oh, my God, this is so interesting. I didn't know about this, this about you. Please write a book, write a book. And then I was like, oh, 
okay, they might be interested. So I started just collecting these, these posts and just putting them in a folder. I never really thought about seriously writing a book. And then this is how the universe works. At the same time, a lit agent contacted me and a HarperCollins publishers contacted me and said, uh, contacted my agent and were like, do you think Gina would be interested in writing a book? So that's how the universe works. So, and I didn't think I'd be able to write it, to be fair. I, I just got, you know, I, I, I got the book deal. Then I got the TV show and the TV show took over my life. Bob Hart's have a show because I'm a, a co-exec producer, writer and actor on the show. So it took over my every waking hour. And I thought, I don't think I'm going to be able to write this book because I've looked at other people who've written books and they go off to, to islands or, or go and hire and just sit in a room for months and just write. And I was like, I haven't got time to do that. So I, I spoke to somebody who's going to be my ghostwriter. I got a ghostwriter originally. And I spoke to her and I was like, I'll tell you the stories and I'll record everything and you write it. But when she came back with what she'd written, I was like, oh no, this is, this is not me at all. This is not going to work. I'm going to. So I had to fire her and start again from scratch. But luckily for me, I don't think you're ever going to hear this from anybody else, but luckily for me, COVID hit. <laughs> it's a horrible way to say it, but because we're in quarantine for over a year, I was like, well, this is the universe telling me to buckle down and get my shit together. So I wrote this book during quarantine. So what my advice would be to people is, you may not think you could do it, but you will somehow find that time find the strength to do it you'll find that skill set you don't realize you whether you can do something until you actually do it i never knew i had a book in me but once i sat down and started writing it just poured out of me so it's give you give yourself the opportunity to try it and learn if it works great if it doesn't at least you tried it and that is that would be my advice i love that well i know per your earlier comment about reincarnation that you believe that there is a lot of spirit of your grandmother in you and your birthmark yes. is you know in line with where she you know got poisoned or whatever happened anyway i feel like you have taken all of her strength and used all of the skills and made <laughs> such a difference so bravo to you and that's awesome <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> all right. Well, best of luck, Gina. And I'll be now watching your show and watching all your comedy and like oh, laughing like crazy. You. I'm so glad I got to know you. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for reading the book. I hope all the mothers out there who haven't got time to read books, read this book. Because I think you'll find you'll get through it pretty quickly. I keep it fast paced. You do. It did. <laughs> it went very quickly and it was super entertaining and emotional and great. And it's always great learning about somebody else's experience. And that's how we all grow as people, right? It's something not exactly. similar to our lives necessarily, but you know, exactly. there you go. Exactly. All right. All right. Bye, Gina. Thank you very much. Thank Take you. care. Take bye bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.